Welcome again to another edition of the Southwest Climate Podcast. I'm here as always with uh, Mike. Mike, how you doing today? Hey, Zach. I'm doing all right. Happy water year. Three-day weekend. Loving it. You look a little worse for the wear. I need 40. <laughs> the last time that we came at you guys, we recapped the monsoon. This version is... Go even farther back in time, because that makes sense. Yes. We will go farther back yeah, in time. We will. First, we'll get yep. you caught up to what's happened since then to now, and then we'll do a recap of the water year in review, mm -hmm. the hydrologic water year in review, yet another calendar. This is the October through September period, which aligns better with the hydrology of the of the West. No, um, no water year cards at the uh, Hallmark store. Tried for you. That's not all that surprising, Mike. Actually, who knows about the what water, who knows market. about the hydrologic what year. a missed market i say <laughs> and uh, of course we'll we'll look forward a little bit talk about uh the uh now official la nina that will uh be with us for at least the next couple months and torment us once again over winter season we'll get you guys caught up to speed on on la nina conditions and what we might think about for our, our winter this is the time of year, October and November, which can be quite variable. Mm -hmm. And it has been relatively boring so far this year. If, I uh, think we have to, I was just asking you, were you here in October? I, okay, I, I give you boring. I missed, for sure. I, missed, I missed two weeks. Yeah, you, but, yeah you, you get out of town just <laughs> like, you know something that, I, that everybody doesn't know and you leave town before it gets miserable. Here. But this is a high variability time, right? It's a high variability time, right? So you can either, <clears throat> you can either get uh, these events that come in decaying tropical storms yep. or these, you know, northwestward sort of transition season uh, lows that come in from the Pacific Northwest or neither. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, what we've had in, in October, well, actually in November. So we've had one event in, in, in November so far, right? We've had, we actually had two similar events, one early in October. Uh, there was a kind of a very weak transition type storm system that spawned some thunderstorms just to the southeast of Tucson in early October. I think it was on October 8th or 9th. I mean, they, they were very isolated uh, hail-producing storms that emerged off of a pretty weak wiggle, low-pressure system. That's a technical term. It's just a wiggle. 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 And uh, it spawned a couple of very, very narrow, very small, but high-intensity thunderstorms that actually dumped accumulating amounts of hail in Safford. I saw some hmm. pictures come back where... They actually had to get the snow plows out and uh, plow the roads because they had accumulating hail and it beat up quite a bit of the cotton crop that was still in the fields in early October. Not monsoon. Even the Storm Prediction Center had, um, I think they may have even issued a, a severe thunderstorm watch based on the potential for these to become supercell-type storms, meaning there's lots of good shear in the atmosphere, change in wind speed and direction with height. So they, they were moving from the southwest to northeast. Again, pretty small. None of them, I don't believe, anywhere in the sort of Tucson area. So we're confined to Cochise and Graham and Greenlee County. And, yeah, just happened to strike some of the more populated areas out there. But, again, not monsoon by any means. Sort of, again, like you said, transition type. Event. Right, and it was fairly isolated, though. Pretty isolated, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so we had that event. We had that event. Early October. Yeah, and then it just got hot. I mean, yeah. we literally had inverted summer. It felt like late May, early June again, even though it was one of those weird things where the, it would get to be 98, but the sun would be low in the sky. So it you couldn't figure out if you're coming or going. Yeah, you couldn't I, figure out what season it was. It's so. almost like that kind of heat, I think, it doesn't hit you as hard. You don't even sort of... Speak for yourself, man. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I was done. I was done, done, done. 
to me, what I expect is <laughs> I expect the weather to follow the sun, right? And as I, those days got shorter and shorter, I just wanted I wanted some respite. But you, here, you maybe know, we I actually, don't spend enough time out during the middle of the day to experience <laughs> the Apparently, I do. I don't know. I mean, this is walking walking from one building to the next, but it got to be old. I mean, and if this is interesting too, if you look at the temperature traces from the beginning of the month to the end of the month, what you normally see is, you know, you lose about, mm-hmm. I don't know, a quarter of a degree today, a, a, de- a day, maybe maybe a little bit less than that. You know, so you're going from, you know, maybe a daily average high of 75 at the beginning of the month to 70, 65, 70 by the end of the month. What we actually saw was the temperatures actually increased through the end of the month. So by the last week of October, we actually had, we had highs that were record highs and they were up in the mid- upper 90s. So it actually got warmer through the month, which is very confusing as the days are getting shorter. Each subsequent day is getting warmer. So do we know where where uh, October fell in in terms of its ranks? Some locations, it was the warmest in uh, 120 years of record keeping. You see that with the National Climatic Data Center, also known as National Centers for Environmental Information. I have not kept up on my acronym translator. Yeah, I need to have a little guidebook on the acronym uh, transitions, but every every place was in like the top 10 percentile, which the top handful of, of years. I mean, that's kind of a similar story for recent recent years. You know, it had it was a definitely a strong ridge, but it's definitely part of the trend. It's definitely the climate change signal come home. No pure attribution in another direction, but, you know, everything working together in concert. It was, it, stand, it stood out as very unusual. And then we, over the last... Well, for the two weeks of November that we've had so far, it's still been pretty warm. You know, we haven't really had that crash with a really strong cold front coming through yet. And what we actually had early in the month was a fairly unusual, not terribly unusual for the Southwest, but you don't, you don't see it every year, was one of those um, cutoff low pressure systems that actually did a double loop on us. As it did that, it, it spawned a pretty widespread thunderstorm event with lightning and Hail, grapple, technically grapple, big globby snowflakes that melt on the way down. So they come off. You know, if you've ever seen that, you know, it's like a chunky piece of ice that if you kind of smoosh it in your hands, it feels like a like a snowball. It's like a snow cone. It's like a snow cone. Um, hail has striations through it. You know, it's that getting lifted up and sort of cycling through a storm. October was, in fact, the third warmest in the history for for Arizona as a whole. Yeah, that's and, pretty good. And it was <laughs> definitely up there. Uh, it was the warmest since yeah. since 2003 for that's October. Right, yep. Uh, the record was set in in 2003. The departure, the temperature anomaly was 5.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Yowza. That's pretty substantial. That is pretty substantial, yeah. Yeah, so that is part of the the warming trend uh, that we've experienced, although that is obviously an anomaly that can't be attributed to the trend in and of itself. I mean, there, No, it's there, not pure attribution right yeah, there, no. There's the, the ridging, as you said. It was a strong ridge. I mean, what we had, if you looked at the weather pattern through much of October, is you had a very strong uh, low-pressure system, the Aleutian Low in the Gulf yeah, of just, Alaska. Yeah, it just sat there. It did, and it was, you watched it. You have little low-pressure systems that would migrate around the sort of center of action of the low, and it would actually retrograde, you know, so it kind of it would wobble forward and then it would wobble back. And the fact that it wasn't the whole sort of wave train of the jet stream wasn't progressing is that you just had a static ridge. Yeah. So why was it not progressing? Like, I why wasn't know. it moving through? Uh, I don't but know. But now is the time when you start seeing Yeah, I, I, you know, you get, I think storm systems can get a little bit blocky as you're sort of transitioning into the season. I, there's a lot of stuff going on upstream. There was 
some typhoon, you know, you get these sort of late season typhoons that you're um, always chasing your tail. In other words, exactly. Right? Yeah. It always goes backwards. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, we go all the way back across the Pacific ocean and you can get these typhoons that they'll make landfall in the sort of far West Pacific, or they'll get entrained into the westerly flow. And that energy from the typhoons gets absorbed in the jet stream and then can induce uh, or sort of reinforce the waves in the jet stream that are already existing or, you know, sort of downstream. There was other stuff too. There's some blocking going on upstream in Siberia. There's a fairly complex but static weather pattern. And as we move forward, that will evolve more into a wintertime pattern. And I'd expect us to see some transition type stuff, more sort of wintry type stuff coming up fairly soon. So as a whole, October was, was dry. I mean, it, it, yeah, it did. I it mean, came it came in as yep, we below that. average across the entire state. In fact, if you look at like a Westwide map, uh, there's this diagonal that goes from basically central California all the way up to, all the way up to the Northern border, North East border of, of, of Montana, that sort of yeah. above that North of that yep. was above average and below and south of that was below average. You can trace the jet stream right through that breakpoint between the Pacific Northwest. I think the Pacific Northwest had its wettest, the, you talk about Seattle, had its wettest October on record, right? And the hmm. fall, October, November is their wettest time of year. They have they been slammed. like, and they've, they've done this for a couple of years in a row now too. They've had these exceptionally wet sort of shoulder seasons of falls and springs. I think it really shows, you know, getting the record heat down here, record wet up there, points to having a very stagnant um, and the ridge and the ridge building would help funnel all the, yeah, this, the western storms that's up, right up in that area. yeah i mean it, the you know those little rotating low pressure systems around the the anchored aleutian low just they got a parade of storms through there the precip amounts were pretty epic okay hot and dry hot and dry down here yeah yeah hot and dry down here yeah and again so on our precip side too you know i've talked about this but the bar is artificially high here for october precip because of a couple of historic wet events. You know, the distribution down Median here is like a, a better, lot of zeros. Median would be a better way to look at Pro- this. Yeah, probably like looking at a percent of normal map is going to, it's going to be red. It's going to be dry more years than not, just because October doesn't typically do much unless we get something epic that comes through. Right. And those are dominated by the recurving sort of decaying tropical storms yeah, from the from big the ones. Yep. The big ones in the past. And right. even we easier had, to be dry. Harder yeah. to be wet. Yeah. But the, yeah. But when the averages do, yeah. more reflect the wet or yeah. they, the, 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 those big years sort of bring up the averages. Right. Yeah. We do, yeah, you do the tails of the distribution better in October than you do in most months. You can, you can get to, to both sides of it. That's uh, a pretty wonky way of saying it, I think. <laughs> let's take a moment here and think about uh, the water year in, in review. So let's, let's sort of recast uh, the October 2015. Go all the way back. We're going to go, we're going to do one year. Oh, man. Yeah, so I am going to make you relive the heinous. Uh, Do you remember El Nino how much event? promise, how giddy we were back in October, twenty fifteen? What, what was I ahead actually of, don't want to do this segment. What was I know? See, you're <laughs> I making. Want, you're, I don't want to make you relive that. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, no, we'll, we'll do it. I'll be fine. And the reason we do this is because this helps us put drought, drought yeah. into context. Yeah, it gives you know, us some some context for you know, what we should, what we should expect out of the climate down here. And it incorporates both seasons because we have a bimodal precipitation here. We have the winter, we have the summer, uh, looking at them together. Sort of, sometimes they can even out, sometimes they reinforce each other. Um, when you look at the sort of October to September period, you know, most of Arizona was basically around normal. You know, the southwestern quarter of the state, the sort of Phoenix to Yuma, and even actually if you go over 
into uh, Southern California was was dry, running you know below ninety percent of average, and in some locations actually below sixty percent of average. Most of the other parts of the state were right around average. As you go up into Utah, it got above average, and even like the Upper Colorado River Basin probably was just just right around average. So, by and large, the accumulation of both last year's winter, the El Nino that wasn't at least for part of us as well as this relatively decent uh, monsoon season sort of uh, even each, even each other out. Right. I think that, that that's probably the, the big story that we'll try to, you know, pick apart over the next couple of minutes. You go back over that 12-month period over the water year and things <laughs> wash out towards average. But, you know, is anything but average in the way that we got there in most of those locations, right? Which you can argue that in any given year. But this was, a you know, I think a fairly unusual path we took to get to. Um, September 30th. Yeah. So let me just rattle off these these 12 months. Starting in October, October for uh, Arizona in particular, actually for both Arizona and New Mexico, New Mexico yeah. and large swaths of the West, aside from sort of California, was wet, yeah. b- above average. So boom, we had a nice uh, kickoff to the hydrologic year. November sort of tanked. Now well, the, the Mogollon Rim area experienced some, some precipitation. They did. They picked up a a glimmer of hope with actually a little bit of accumulating snow early on in the season in November. For the low country and for the lower elevation stations across Southwest, it was fairly quiet. We were closing in on the apex of the optimism. I'm going to sprinkle a little color commentary as we go through these months. So October, Tucson picked up almost two inches of rain by the end of October with six, seven events. So a couple of those were over three quarters of an inch, right? One of the first events was a tropical storm. It, it was a named storm that became post-tropical, did some stuff. We also had some sort of, eh, you know, sloppy monsoon leftover stuff in that month. But yeah, by the end of the month, it's not El Nino-driven precip, but we'll take it sort of idea. And the best was yet to come, right? Right. Uh, And then that best didn't show up in November. No, October, we were at the apex of the optimism, not seeing much of that El Nino pattern really sort of showing up. But we had talked ourselves into, or I had convinced you, that I wasn't it, the convinced. Best was, I just <laughs> I want to go weren't. on the record and say that I was I know not you convinced. weren't. You were, you were, yes, yes, you were, you were more sober about this than I was the whole way along. Yep. You know, I was arguing, well, it's November's not a solid ENSO uh, month anyways. So we're, the center of action is still coming up. Okay. So below average in November, fast forward to December. Again, same. December same was deal. terrible. <laughs> it was. I remember it. December was terrible. December was a very dry, relatively cool. A couple of really good cold snaps that kind of rolled through there. By the end of the month, New Mexico had actually picked up a, uh, a snowstorm on the sort of east side mm-hmm. and had gotten hammered with that. I was very jealous sort of looking east there. You know what? I do remember the chatter was like, don't worry, it's going to come. The, yeah, yeah. the atmosphere is yeah. going to respond. Yeah, yeah. To and, this, and then it was all epic the El Nino like, event. Well, it's not the fall anyways, yeah. right? We should be looking at January, February, March. Boom. January happens. That's and- right. And and this El Nino is, comes home right after New Year's. Okay, I'm going to do the next couple months and uh, you just uh, combine. You need to jump for it because it's easy. So February, <laughs> March, February, oh. March. I'm looking at this red map and it's like it's almost like they oh slaughtered an elk down here. I yeah, mean, it, it is just it is just flat red. Crazy, yeah. And by that I mean less than five percent of average inverted spring. The temperatures jumped to the equivalent of late April temperatures in early February. Now, I'm not jo- I'm not being hyperbolic here. They literally were. The temperatures in early February were the equivalent of the normal daily average highs of late April for Tucson. This is is across the Southwest. Pretty much all of the West, aside from like the far Pacific Northwest, was was dry. Now, March actually had a different story. 
again, it was the bullseye was on Arizona, New Mexico, and and uh, parts of Southern California. But north of our region, it was quite actually quite wet. This marks the fact that the the jet stream was just a slightly further further north. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's actually starts to look more like a fairly normal um, transition into spring type pattern, where the a little bit even north of the Upper Colorado River Basin starts to get preset. Well, and the crazy thing is, is I remember the talk here was like, this looks a lot like a, um, a La Nina pattern. <laughs> it did. Totally you know? I mean, like it does. a La Nina pattern. Yeah. Yes, it did. So then April, April's, we don't get a lot of precipitation in April. No. This was the second year in a row where we started to see this kind of weather that we would typically see in February and March show up in April and May. And I think it was largely attributable to an El Nino type, finally type response sort of showing up in the late spring. We had in the sort of the misfire of the El Nino the previous year, we had something very similar. And what you and I were talking about before we started here, it was like the Miracle May in the upper Colorado, which we actually started to get accumulating snow and, and some lower elevation precip in April and May. It happened again. Happened mm-hmm. again this year. I do think was sort of a El Nino leftovers in the spring. May, it's hard looking at these maps that have percent of, percent of average. Yeah, at that point. you're A small accumulation can cause it to look very wet. But the fact that it rained at all. The fact that it rained at all, yeah. Is that saying something? And, you know, the pattern across the Southwest was that some places actually did pick up significant amounts of precip in May. Parts didn't, which aren't too surprising. The temperature, though, May ended up being very close to average, which in this sort of long-term trend felt cool, which was you know, kind of unusual because we'd expect it to be um, pretty warm. And we don't necessarily need to go over all the details of the monsoon because we had just covered that in the most recent podcast. But the monsoon uh, started early. June was, uh, you know, I, I believe the first rain that we got here in, in, in Tucson was around June June 20th. You know, and we had a fairly decent accumulation in, the, in June and, and that rolled right into uh, early July as well. I remember July being fairly good, but this most of Arizona looks like experienced uh drier conditions during July. Yeah, July was the weird month where we had that long break right in the middle. Right after the 4th of July, we had a big slowdown. Southeast Arizona actually picked up some more precip. New Mexico was quite miserable. They, they had very little activity for most of July. So July was quite a bit slower except for a couple of locations than we would have expected to see at the first month of the monsoon. It wasn't until we got into August we started to see more of that widespread activity, which we talked about. Yeah, and, and uh, August turned out to be pretty good for, for both Arizona and yeah. New Mexico. Again, there's always little spots that end up falling behind just based on the nature of the, of the precip. Again, that takes us to sort of a near average water year for much of the, the Southwest. You want Trent- to talk about September? Did I miss September? You just, just skipped it. There's <laughs> not skipped, much to talk about. I just skipped over yeah. September. There's only... Really, honestly, uh, Tropical Storm Newton. September. Well, see, I was I was gone. That's so. right. So you, it doesn't even count in your mind, does it? No, I people mean, live here, man. We were here. We suffered amazing. through it. It was um, that boosted some water year precip totals quite significantly based on one day. Tropical Storm Newton almost made it into the into the U.S. as a uh, tropical storm, but was called just south of the border that its wind speeds and its circulation had fallen apart and wasn't going to be. And we, so it became po- post-tropical storm Newton as it crossed in the U.S. Uh, it was a very wide, uh, widespread in the sense of all of southeast Arizona, parts of southwest New Mexico. Southern California as well. Yeah, a little bit Southern California. A little bit different residual moisture kind of coming up for that. The core of the circulation, though, went right up through southeast Arizona up into New Mexico. Long duration, 24-hour event, anywhere from one to four inches 
a precip for some locations. And so at the, you know, coming at the end of the water year of consequence to that total. Right. We transitioned out of the monsoon quite, quite inauspiciously. You know, one of the, the stories here in the Southwest is, is the water supply and the Colorado River Basin during the water year experienced slightly below average flows. So one of the major stories here, in, in, at least in terms of the the water year is looking at sort of its effect on on uh, the water supply and Colorado River, upper Colorado River Basin experience flows about 90% of average, which sort of perpetually is taking us closer and closer to that, you know, shortage declaration on Colorado River. We can talk about that. If not on this podcast, we should probably, we should probably spend a little bit more time talking about that. But by and large, across New Mexico, reservoirs declined by about 10%. Whereas Arizona, the reservoirs remained more or less what they were uh, when, when they started the season. So, you know, water supply is never, it's never in a good state here in the Southwest. It hasn't been for more than a decade now. And the, the El Nino that we had hoped, at least many water managers had, ho- had hoped, didn't deliver. And, still, and so we're going into the upcoming, upcoming winter and, and really a, a worst case situation, at least in New Mexico, than we were last year. Just for, for people paying attention, you know, Elephant Butte Reservoir is, is still around 6% full. And again, many uh, people there in, in the lower New Mexico depend on that for, for irrigation. Colorado River, the, the most recent forecast uh, for the shortage declaration pins it at a likely January 2018. So again, we're we still seem to be pushing this slightly down down the route down the road. It's still not a question of if it's it's sort of a question of when. Although we've been in the last three years sort of thinking it's it's more imminent than perhaps it is. And you know, if La Nina throws us a curveball, uh, at least in in Colorado, uh, and delivers above average uh, precipitation, you know, it could be even f- further down the road. Yeah, you and I were trying to do the thought exercise of what has been the weather that's been able to allow us to kick the can down the road a little bit more. And the pattern of precept the last couple of years has not been stellar for sort of early, you know, solid accumulation of snowpack. You know, is it, you were just kind of musing here. Is it, is it the, the miracle may effects of these sort of late spring accumulations, in the upper basin that just cut the, you know, cut the time for when the stream flows drop off in the summer. I, I don't know. Is it the timing of the precip? As you're saying, though, the the stream flows have been at 90% of average, so they've been below average. They've been below <laughs> average, and we're also running out of structural deficits. So yeah, yeah. And each I don't know year, it, yeah, we should be drawing out more and coming closer to that iconic 1075, which you know it's right now the water levels are at 10. Uh, 1,078 feet above sea level. What triggers a shortest declaration is the is the forecast made in August for the upcoming January. And if that forecast for the water levels in Lake Mead is below 1075, then it triggers the measures that they have agreed upon to reduce the. It's basically cap. Central Arizona project draws less water than than they were allocated. Uh, the projection for this upcoming January is not below 1075. It's I think it's 1080, and the the 50 percent chance in for January 2018 is for it to be below 1075. But of course, that's things could change by what yeah, goes on I, this winter. Right, right. What we've learned nothing about trying to predict the future um, <laughs> clearly in our sort of discussion here. Things are sort of on the sort of severe level in terms of of water supply, and that's not going to change unless until we get successive years of uh, of substantial winter winter rains. We're going to pivot at some point here into the the outlooks for this winter, but I don't know. It's 
It's likely not going to be this. Uh, it's likely not going to be this winter. I like that. You know, there's still that's a good. chance that it could be. I think that's one of the lessons that we've learned from recent events, including the El Nino. Yes, yes. Why don't we just talk very briefly about the hurricane season? I, I'd say there's a couple stories to the last year, and I think the the Eastern Pacific has been above average. So that we've experienced, I think, what 21 named storms in the Eastern Pacific Ocean, uh, not, uh, what six yeah. major hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Both of those, I believe the average is something like 14 named storms and three major hurricanes. A major hurricane is what, category four and five, or is it category three, four, and five? I think it's three, four, and five. Yeah, three, four, and five. I think largely what the research is pointing to and what we sort of know qualitatively with the sea-specific hurricane seasons is that it was a lot of this was the El Nino driven and the pattern of the sea surface temperatures and some of the corresponding uh, atmospheric patterns, too, had really driven this recent activity over these last couple of years. So our sort of super mega hyper El Nino of the last two years really did create a favorable environment for really active East Pacific storm seasons. Given that and this sort of transition away from that, I'd expect to see like next fall be quite a bit quieter across much of the basin there. So average, uh, let me correct some numbers that I that I said before. But are the you, f- you fact checking? Yeah, I'm fact checking right now. I mean, I wow. I think this is a really good f- function that we can do here. It's I, real time, <laughs> real time fact checks. Let's, fact check let's hold ourselves accountable. We should hold ourselves accountable. Charge now. ourselves for that service. <laughs> then I think that's good. Yes. So um, the 1981, the 2010 average is 15 and a half named storms, uh, seven and a half hurricanes, and 3.2 major hurricanes. Uh, what we ex- You're pretty close. Yeah, what we experienced, I was pretty close. Yeah. Uh, what we experienced was 21 named storms, 13 hurricanes. So pretty good, huh? Pretty much double. Double it. Close yeah. to double. double. And double the major hurricanes. Yeah. Six. So that's, it's been a, it's busy. Yeah, it's been very, very busy. We also had the other thing that you didn't mention, or if you did, I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy fact checking was what? It was the earliest on record, the earliest in the year tropical storm, right? I believe oh, it was. yeah. With, yep. What was that? That was, um, yeah, Polly. Yeah. That's right. Her, uh, category two. Yes. The Atlantic Ocean also had a fairly active, although not as active, but the damage was much larger over there in terms of, of dollars just yes. because of uh, Matthew. We've sort of alluded to what's up in store for us. And I think recently it's become official after some waffling um, whether or not this La Nina event would take shape. Yeah. Uh, it has taken shape. The, the measurements are in, in place. The metrics are in place. People expect that a weakish La Nina will take form uh, or will remain in form through, remain, yeah. through the early parts of this winter. It's, it's been a very interesting and humbling seasonal forecasting set of years here. And, you know, as we went into the El Nino and tried to figure out what El Nino was doing in real time and tried to track its strength and magnitude and then saw it sort of rear up and then not deliver us the sort of teleconnections and the patterns we wanted to see, you know, in the Southwest or expected to see. Uh, I was clearly wish casting for that um, <laughs> that wet winter down here. Mike's wish cast. You have a model for I that? I do. Have, oh, my wish casting, it's a very simple model. What is your wish cast for uh, for this year? My Well, my wish cast is for, I'd, I'd like to see some cool weather you know, pleasant weather coming up. And then I'd like to see some precipitation. I'd like to see some snow and snowpack across the uh, Southwest. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Uh, massive snowpack would massive be Massive snowpack, some, you know, good good mix of some rainy days, some, you know, sunny days in there. So too. basically your wish cast is always for the wetter side of things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How many days a year do we yeah, spend I mean, here staring at blue sky? Beautiful. 
I don't want to I don't want to knock it too much, but I thought that was our one chance to sort of see what an epic El Nino was going to do. But anyways, the point being was that we were in the spring looking towards what would happen with the evolution of this El Nino, and 1990, 1998 came up as a potential analog. You know, again that that second largest uh, magnitude El Nino with a very rapid crash to a very strong La Nina event, which really did set up some of the conditions we saw in the drought conditions of the late 90s and early 2000s. This <laughs> this event didn't do that. It, it kind of waffled a bit. It slowed down. It hung out in El Nino. Forecast models then started, okay, well, any month now it's going to crash to La Nina. And we had a couple of about faces, didn't we, early in the fall where yeah, they were, there they was were a forecast. Yeah, there was a forecast and then they backed off. Climate Prediction Center backed off of the forecast and said we're now heading for And neutral. the atmosphere just wasn't it wasn't no. playing along. And that's been the story. Yeah, it was exactly what we had on the going into the El Nino yeah. was the atmosphere was was lagging, not cooperating with the ocean. Same thing was happening early in the fall where the La Nina signal had emerged in the sea surface temperature pattern. The atmosphere was sort of shrugging, which I was in favor of, right? I was in favor of it sort of ignoring the ocean and going back towards, let's just go towards a normal winter here. There's now more organization, more of a signal in the atmosphere, but the models really don't point to this to being a sort of a deep, long, dragged out strong La Nina that persists deep into the spring, most of them show it sort of crashing midwinter towards neutral. But does that really matter? I don't know. I'm yeah. not sure it's going to matter or not. Yeah, so let's get to that for a sec in, in, in a second. But if you look at all the models, the statistical and dynamical models, like there's only one that has it reaching sort of a moderate strength. Yeah. Most of them have having it between neutral and, and, and a weak La Nina. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and b- b- like reaching its peak magnitude, like right about now. That's right. Most of the peaks are around the, the, the November, December, January. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we're right on the edge. But of that. should we believe them? I think if we use last year's El Nino, right, they got the forecast for El Nino. Yeah. Right. It was that it was much harder to then forecast the teleconnections to that. Fair enough. Yeah. It, it, it did. Okay, it did, right? But it was basically a now cast. It was adjusting itself. It it every month and every subsequent update was following the evolution of the monitoring. I it, it we'll have to go back and sort of think about. Maybe I'm just so bitter now that I don't believe that there was ever a good forecasting signal in there. Well, and, and for us, like who cares like what the tropical Pacific Ocean temperatures are like, right? It's all about like what the yeah, Pacific, it's about what the what the weather is going to happen. Right. Yeah. So I mean it's almost sort of like a secondary. Yeah, but we. I mean, we. we yeah, the science to, got it right. But the they, science. Yeah, but they missed the, the well, they forecast missed, right. for the, the the precip. The forecast really missed the nuance of a. It was a flavor of El Nino that we we didn't have in the historical record, and the historical record was short. If we had a thousand years of El Nino. How many of those El Ninos would we have seen? Probably more than zero right. yeah, we <laughs> that we had in our back pocket. So, what does a La Nina mean for the Southwest? La Ninas for the Southwest are pretty reliably dry. Yeah, they are. And in fact, if you look at the events that fell between neutral and La Nina, yeah. like most of those, the total accumulated precipitation for those seasons are all hovering around similar similar numbers. Similar numbers, right. You know, it's only when you get out to a week El Nino and above does the spread sort of increase. That being said, the neutral years have had the, the wettest year on record. Yeah. Excuse me, not year. Winter. Yeah, winter and record with 1993. 1993. Yeah. Coming in at for the southeast 
Arizona area, Climate Division 7, so Southeast Arizona, for the December through January period came in at close to 11 inches. Yeah, it was, it was pretty epic. It was either one or multiple, so what we call these atmospheric river events, which are these sort of focused, funneled, subtropical moisture um, type storms trailing across the Southwest. It's interesting, if you look at 1993, 92, 93, December and January, all of the weather happened in December and January. Nothing before it, not really much after that into the spring. So, I mean, it, it stands out as a pretty unusual year in the historical record. So to your point earlier, the numbers that we have definitely suggest that we have much greater chances of coming in at a, at, a, at a drier winter. We do. And so, again, this is where you have to think about the region as a whole. And so the signal is typically, talking about La Nina winters, it's typically stronger further south. So like the southern half of Arizona and New Mexico, La Ninas tend to steer that storm track further north. So you can have situations where the northern part of the state has less of a risk than the southern part of the state. So you and you see that in the official forecast coming out from Climate Prediction Center. Yeah, and that's a good point I think for our conversation earlier about the 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 reservoir the basin, and, yeah, yeah, and the ba- basin because there isn't as strong of a signal for the yeah. Upper Colorado River. That's right. That's right. So um, so go snow, go snow, go snow, man. I and, and this is too. I'm so rooting for snow. I I am too. I you know we could just use it every once in a while. I'm not trying to be greedy here. Can't you say like once every five or ten years we get a good year out of this this climate system? Go 1993. Go 93. Yeah, go 93. Well, some people would. Just assume 93 not happened again. It was an epic flutter across. You're um, right. That's bad. That's much of, of that's, uh, much of Arizona. That's bad karma. It's point. bad karma. Don't yeah. Don't don't wish on uh, 1979. Don't, don't will your Godzilla. Does anybody remember 1979? I don't. These are just numbers. These me. are numbers we're we're pulling out here. But let's maybe you know one of the. I'm just going to be an optimist here. I'm going to try and try this out today. Weak La Niñas into the sort of neutral sort of uh, bridling this 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 line here. You know, some research suggests that. This week, a La Nina to neutral conditions, we can actually have the Madden-Julian oscillation play a much greater role in the, the subseasonal variability here, right? Because during El Ninos, you don't typically have the easterly winds to propagate along these, these um, storm systems from across the Pacific Ocean. And during La Nina's, it's too strong to have good propagation. So in this sort of middling zone, you can start to see the subseasonal variability exert itself a little bit more. I don't know. Maybe there's an upside here. Maybe we see some more of these these other teleconnections start to to play a positive role into the weather systems of the the winter. I think what it does say is that there's we should lean just <laughs> the pessimistic side and probably bet on dry here, but there could be a couple of surprises. I am sure I said this a year ago. And we should always surprised. bet on dry. <laughs> I should, but I was surprised by March and February and March by brutally hot and dry they were. Mm. That was not the surprise I was looking for in that particular year. The surprise I'm looking for this year is a couple of good knockdown drag out wet events that are nicely timed throughout the spring. It's not too much to ask for. You I know, think. I think that's a great way to end it. Okay. Thanks for that optimism. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I needed that. I needed that. <laughs> Thanks to all of you for tuning into the Southwest Climate Podcast. We'll come back and do the holiday December edition. edition, the holiday yep, the edition. Holiday edition with eggnog, sort of holiday scene. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. 
the Southwest Climate Podcast is a production of CLEMIS, which is part of NOAA's Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program and is housed at the University of Arizona Institute of the Environment. Mike Crimmins is a principal investigator with CLEMIS, a professor of soil, water, and environmental science in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and climate extension specialist with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Zach Guido is a research scientist with the Institute of the Environment and UA Program Manager of the International Research and Applications Program. The podcast is edited and produced by Ben McMahon, Research Outreach and Assessment Specialist with Clemus. Edit that one out. Please get rid of that. <laughs>